0: Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Uh, welcome to the Stem Cells at Lunch podcast. Uh, I'm Pete, a PhD student here at the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine. And uh, with me today is uh, Sue Kimber, a professor in Stem Cell and Developmental Biology at the University of Manchester. Uh, And I actually had the good fortune of uh, working with Sue during my master's project, uh, so it's really nice to have you here today. Um, So, yeah, uh, first of all, if you could please just sort of break down your research interests, what your lab is.
1: Okay, well, first of all, just like to say it's really nice to be here too. Um, So, our lab is pretty much nowadays solely a pluripotent stem cell lab. We're interested in various aspects of peripotent stem cells. We've done a little bit on basic mechanisms, but most of what we do is on differentiating these cells. That means making them into specialized cell types. Uh, And why we're interested in that is because um, these uh, cells that we're using are human and we can make human models of development to try and understand how development occurs. Obviously for ethical and accessibility reasons. You can't do experiments or understand a lot, particularly about early development of the human embryo. So this is a really good opportunity. Uh, And um, we're also interested in developing those models for uh, using them for things like drug screening and therapy. And particularly there, the interest is in obtaining pluripotent stem cells that have particular mutations particular genetic mutations that give disease and we want to therefore model disease in a dish as the colloquial uh. expression goes
0: so there's sorts of diseases that you work on there what, what kind of diseases are there
1: okay so there we've we've worked on a number of um uh diseases um We've done a little bit on vascular disease with my colleague, Tao Wang. That is a disease that causes early onset stroke. And there we had to make the cells of the blood vessels, both the lining cells of the blood vessels and the uh, cells that form the outside of those vessels and and try to find out what goes wrong in that stroke disease. But our main sort of um, effort is on skeletal diseases, particularly diseases that cause short stature and early onset arthritis and also kidney disease.
0: So it seems that your research covers kind of the full spectrum of, uh, from basic stem cell biology all the way to more translational applications of stem cell research. So you've developed a number of uh, clinical grade human ES lines. Um, So do you see either basic or translational research as being more important or do you get more enjoyment from working in the more sort of basic end of research or more the sort of translational side of things?
1: Um, I think the translational end is very difficult but then sometimes the basic science is very difficult too. So Mm. in Manchester we have something called the Manchester Regenerative Medicine Network and that uh, prides itself in trying to go from basic science through to translation into the clinic. So I suppose in some ways I've stretched myself too thinly by trying to do both. <laughs> but what, I'm, what I think I'm most interested in now is that interface with the translational.
0: So when did you first realise that you wanted to become a scientist?
1: Well, actually, yes, I was thinking about that coming down on the train. And actually it goes back to my GCEs, because this was a long time ago. Uh, and I had a very inspirational chemistry teacher, so not actually biology, chemistry teacher, who was probably coming up to retirement, but she just made everything so interesting, and um, she made the whole of science interesting, and that's really what first triggered my interest to get into science.
0: So then you studied at the University of Cambridge after yes. that? Um, so could you kind of talk us through your, what your career path has been like since? Yes, it's since, been quite...
1: I've reinvented myself several times. Right. <laughs> uh, I started out as a developmental biologist looking at development of the locust eggshell mm. and that's what I did my PhD on. Um, actually that was a really good start because I had to study how proteins were made, protein secretion, protein assembly and all those things actually have come into good stead later but I very quickly realized that that wasn't how I wanted to go on with my career. And I then went to work with Professor Azeem Surani um, in Cambridge. And he was working on then uh, entirely mouse embryos. And I got involved in mammalian development, mouse embryo development. And from that, I went into reproductive biology. And I spent um, really about 15 years looking at how specification occurs in the early embryo and how the early embryo actually implants in the uterus. and. Probably I've got more papers in that area actually than I have in stem cells. Mm. In 1998, Jamie um, Thompson published his paper uh, showing that you could make human ES cells and I'd become a bit frustrated with the limitations of working on uh, early mouse development in terms of its ability to translate to the human. I really wanted to look at things in the human. So I thought this was a wonderful opportunity to actually start doing some human development by using cells in a dish which were at least near to um, the embryo. Mm. And then from that, of course, uh, with the advent of IPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, when you can make similar types of these very early stem cells from the cells of somebody's body, we could then go on and make... Cells from people who had a particular genetic disease, particularly monogenic diseases, and reprogram them to a stem cell like state and then we could make those into a particular cell that was affecting those individuals in a dish and try and find out what was wrong
0: hmm. so it seems that your kind of interests have kind of morphed over time depending on the technological advancements that have they have come in yes the field.
1: yes um I still collaborate a bit in reproductive biology Hmm. I still have a few papers coming out but only as a collaborator but my main interest is has has changed somewhat towards human development and human disease.
0: So what do you think uh, are the most important applications of your work or perhaps the most kind of important or interesting findings you've had during your career?
1: The second one I find very difficult to answer Um, The applications, I think at the moment we have some handle on what goes goes wrong in some rare skeletal diseases and we're hoping that we may be able to actually identify some drugs, reposition some drugs that we might be able to use to see if we can redress that and then if we can maybe that can be translated as a a new drug because the young children when they're born are often normal stature so if we could Mm. actually treat them as young children we might be able to make sure that they they grew, their long bones grew as Mm. normal. And the other thing is in the kidney field um, we've been able to make these little mini kidneys which actually we can show even can filter the blood uh, and that's uh, been done uh, using a mouse model um, in which we we plant implant these little mini kidneys under the skin and then show that they have filtering function. But if we could expand those, um, I think that, that might be Uh, a tool that you could use to maybe supplement people who have failing kidneys. I don't really Mm. see it as an alternative to a kidney transplant, but if you could actually put that transplant into someone and it could effectively give their kidney a helping hand, that'd be very useful. But we're Mm. also using that system in vitro to try and develop some new drugs Mm. to uh, treat kidney disease.
0: So you had a lot of media attention, particularly for that a paper where you showed that you could um, produce human kidney organoids that could produce uh, urea Um, so what was it like having this kind of Um, media attention
1: well it was rather astonishing actually (laughs) (laughs) it was obviously it was very nice and we were asked to write a number of articles i think it was excellent that to have your science recognized sometimes you work for three or five years on a paper that you think is really important and you publish it and you don't really feel anybody realizes How, what significance yeah. it has and so that was really nice i was telling you earlier pete that there were some surprising uh, repercussions of that and a few um not so nice comments on the internet and that made me realize that actually in this age sometimes success or something that you think is positive may actually have a backlash but uh, yes it was great and uh, you know that paper I hope will act as a a stepping stone to really um, taking things further in terms of the disease modeling too because if we can um, take these mini kidneys that we make that have a disease phenotype further um, to really get to the um, point of being functional, we're going to have a much better handle on what is wrong with them.
0: Hmm. I, th- I think I remember, I was in the lab at the time that work was being done by Yanis. Um, and it was was it a bit of a surprise to you as well at the time how well these kidneys functioned?
1: Yes, it was a nice surprise. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was. We, we actually thought that, um, you know, it might go very seriously wrong and we might Mm. not get further development at all because most people in the field have been putting transplants of um, developing kidneys under the kidney capsule which you might think is the right environment for kidney cells but we thought well we'll try a much much simpler and non-invasive model which is hardly even surgery literally Mm. you use a syringe to inject them under the skin and it did work. Not in all cases, but but a high percentage of them
0: worked. So following on from that, how much do you think chance plays a role in a successful uh, scientific career?
1: I think uh, you need to be in the right place at the right time. You need to have the collaborators. You need to talk to people. And you also sometimes need to follow your intuition as well as the literature. I mean, obviously it does. I've had really good conversations bumping into visitors in the corridor, which have led to really nice uh, collaborations. But you probably have to be strategic too.
0: Yeah. So an element of you've got to have a baseline of hard work for any success. And then on top of that, there's these elements of kind of chance that you don't know where something's going to come from.
1: Certainly, I think every scientist will say that every single one of their achievements and publications has been a massive amount of hard work on the part of a lot of people and I think it's really important that um, each individual that comes to the lab say as a master's student or a PhD student or a postdoc they fill in at least a piece of that jigsaw even if they don't ever get to completing the whole jigsaw Mm. and they're all really important and some of the things that I'm proudest of are actually some of the people that have gone through my lab and have gone out to do you know great things in the outside world Mm. and now have their own chairs or a head of uh, some large division in some pharmaceutical company and I think that is certainly as equally satisfying as getting your good paper out.
0: So having been your master's student, I know firsthand how motivated you and your lab are. Um, so what is it that kind of gets you out into the Manchester drizzle every morning, what, what <laughs> It doesn't you? rain every
1: day, although it is raining an awful lot at the moment. <laughs> it's raining awful lot at the moment everywhere though, isn't it?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> how, what do, what, well, um, that was the question of yours that I found most difficult to answer actually, because I really enjoy science. And I also really enjoy the uh, achievements of the people that work with me in the lab. And I think coming in and trying to avoid the email, but finding out you know what people did this week, what they did yesterday, and how that's taken things on, uh, it's a little bit like uh, being a detective. Um, you've got a problem in front of you and you've got to kind of find the solution. And sometimes you go completely the wrong way and then sometimes you have a breakthrough and you go the right way. And mm-hmm. those are the sort of things that, yes, just keep you, keep going. you going. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so what advice would you give to your younger self right um, right now at the start of the scientific <laughs> career?
1: I think go back and start again. <laughs> <laughs> I did not do things that, in a good way at the beginning. Really? Uh, I would say, be strategic, um, go to meetings, talk to the intimidating senior scientists that you're you think will think your question is really stupid um, and you know the other thing that I did do was there's no bypass to the hard work yeah. there are many, many days when it doesn't go right, something was left out the the reagents were out of date and you hadn't noticed, and it doesn't work, and those people who stay in science are the ones that pick themselves up after that and think, never mind, onward. Yeah. So I think having stamina is probably more important than brains, really? but you do need brains.
0: <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> perspective.
1: That's what I say when I do when I do um, talks to schools, and they ask you, oh, what does it take to be a scientist? stamina Stamina. and perseverance (laughs) it's surprising how you can get by really persisting obviously you have to have some brains yeah what i mean is you don't have to be a nobel prize winner
0: yeah and also
1: i think the other thing is you need to keep your enthusiasm for the science once it starts to just be a drag it's better to go and do something else yeah you've got to have that wow factor when you find something
0: and is that how you pick your specific research topics, do you think, just just, just pure kind of interest in that specific really disease Really, it is or that I've area? been really
1: interested. But there have been um, opportunities. Um, for instance, I had the opportunity to get an FP7 grant with somebody called uh, Professor Mike Briggs, who's now in Newcastle. And that gave me a way into obtaining cells from mm. uh, people who have skeletal disease. and mm. that took off from there. Now, If I had maybe been in another conversation with somebody who had been working on muscular dystrophy, I might be working on muscular dystrophy now.
0: So you've had 30 years experience and well over 100 papers published in the field of stem cell biology. Uh, Where do you see the field in another uh, 30 years time?
1: I hope that we will have some stem cell therapies out there. Um, There's a lot of really pioneering work on macular degeneration at the moment, which has been absolutely brilliant, a lot of it down here in London, Um, I think that uh, we will also have uh, really good high-throughput models that we can use for drug testing on human cells, uh, which will be a real benefit to biopharma to get away from the, the animal models. A lot of Biopharma don't really like animal models at all because animals are not human, and mm. we know that massive amounts of money have been wasted in developing drugs which have, in the end, not been suitable for humans. Um, and I think um, the fact that we are using human stem cells in vitro could help with our stratification of medicines as well because at least then we are actually having cells from Different human genetic backgrounds yeah. that we can test drugs in, so we can get a much better um, idea of what really works, and does it work in some for some genetic backgrounds, and not for others? Yeah, it's
0: very interesting. Thank you, Sue.